Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. And this is your host, Tyler Brondike. Today I'm joined with Jeremy Courtney, who is the founder and president of Preemptive Love Coalition and an author. So stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone, to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. I'm excited for this conversation today with Jeremy Courtney, who is the founder and president of Preemptive Love Coalition. He is also an author of several books, most notably his latest, Love Anyway, An Invitation Beyond a World That's Scary as Hell. Jeremy and I discuss uh, some of his backstory um, growing up in Texas and then making a shift over to the Middle East right after 9-11, first in Turkey and then making a move to Iraq. In this episode, we discuss a lot of the work that he's doing with Preemptive Love Coalition, working in, in the Middle East and in places of conflict, of intense division and shares uh, what he went through and some some stories, but also why this is applicable to our times right now in the United States uh, in particular in this context. Um, We discuss peacemaking, some misconceptions on peacemaking, uh, his approach and and how he works to alleviate uh, division um, and, and just these challenges that are tearing down people and people groups. Finally, um, we discuss some ways that that you can get involved, uh, just practically how to be a peacemaker um, as you go out into all that you do. I'm excited for this conversation with Jeremy and and hope that you can take in a a few few doses, a few uh, points of wisdom um, and and apply it into, into your life. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jeremy. Congratulations, first off, on your latest book, Love Anyway, which is releasing at the end of September of 2019. Thanks. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, So uh, to get things started, I I just want to to learn a bit more about you. And uh, for folks who are tuning in and, and may not know more about your story, would you mind sharing uh, a bit more about your 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 background and your childhood upbringing before we dive into the book? Yeah, I grew up in a loving home. Both my parents uh, were very present and around all the time. Uh, stayed together, you know, through all my childhood until today. A um, couple of sisters grew up in a family that was involved full time in Christian ministry. My grandfather was a pastor. My dad for pretty much my whole life seemed like was at my grandfather's side also in professional vocational church ministry. So, um, so it was kind of the, 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 the culture and the air that I grew up in. And when the terror attacks on September 11th took place, um, you know, I think I, I was affected at a, at a very deep level. I was a young man had just graduated from college, had just gotten married, and was standing at a fork in the road in many ways, um, my whole future, our whole future ahead. And um, 
in response to September 11th and the trauma and the fear that that I think instilled in in me and in us as as Americans, we raised our hands, uh, my wife Jessica and I, to go off to be a part of kind of the the global response to 9/11. Um, now a lot of my friends were were going off as military guys they were joining uh joining the military grabbing guns going off to to kill muslims uh that wasn't exactly my heart or my style um but i I did feel this surge of nationalism this surge of pride the surge of fear and i wanted i guess to be a part of of responding to 9-11 so we went overseas as missionaries to um I guess in our own way to kind of be a part of the war on terror. Uh, I would have not said it that way at the time. I didn't. I didn't know that, but I, I think deep down that's that's part of what was going on. Wow. Uh, well, th- thanks for sharing a bit more about your um, your backstory and how you've uh, I guess kind of the the initial. Um, seeds the initial uh kind of growth into into a lot of the work that that you're doing now um and uh want, i definitely want to come back to a kind of some of your you mentioned style and uh uh kind of approach to 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 for example peacemaking um but i, I want to uh, before we get into that i wanted to touch a bit more on um the the origin of your latest book uh love anyway um so th- this will be the second book that you will have authored. Uh, what motivate? What motivated you to write this one? Well, everywhere I go right now, I think pretty much the one thing that we all agree on is that our differences are tearing us apart, and our differences usually come down to what we think about God what we think about government, um, what we think about sexuality and politics and money. And um, these things are just, they're, they're not just differences of opinion. They're not matters that um, are easily just like, well, you have your way and I have my way. In, in many cases, they end up clashing and they take this kind of binary truth versus truth um, sort of dimension to them. And so we end up just ripping each other apart, ripping our societies apart, contending for this this binary, you know, black and white, this versus that way of seeing the world. And I see it everywhere I go, all across Europe, all across the Middle East, all across Australia and the Americas. And um, I wanted to leverage, I wanted to offer what we've learned over the last 15 years of living um, front lines to this war on terror, which was in many ways instigated and motivated by what we believe about God and government and politics and and things like that. Hmm. I wanted to take what we've learned on the front lines of this war and these, these battles and bring it home in some ways, because I think we've been all too happy, uh, or comfortable at least, as long as the war has been kind of on the other side of the world. But I think what has happened in the American context over the last few years is it it feels like the war has come home to us in a very fresh way. It feels like 
we were being ripped apart at home. We were ripping each other apart in a very fresh way. And um, I think I think I've learned a lot. I think our family has learned a lot, and uh, the organization that we went on to start and and run called Preemptive Love has a has a deep body of knowledge now to to try and humbly bring forward um, into the American context and and offer a vision of, of how we can heal what's tearing us apart. And the answer is, is at least partially included in the title. We, mm-hmm. we need to acknowledge our differences. We need to acknowledge that some of these things are truly scary and we need to press in to learn how to love anyway. Thank you. I, 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 um, I agree. It sounds like uh, really nine 11, um, exacerbated, uh, this war on terror and, and um, maybe, maybe the, the reality or just the, the presence that it had in our personal lives uh, of how close it was to us um, and, but yet kind of how, how far away it seemed or how far away it was. Uh, and obviously you going to the front lines, you're able to go back into that, into that space and into uh, in, into a very tense and divisive uh, climate, I, I'm, I'm sure, um, and I completely agree. It uh, we've entered, or we're, we're now in this, this, this tense and divisive uh, space here in, in the United States over the past, you know, a handful of years now, and um, it, 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 it does look like we're, in some capacity, resorting back to tribalism or resorting back to just holding on to our own turf over. Uh, over uh, things that we hold close to us or hold really dear to us, uh, as you have mentioned, uh, a few a few of those different um, different different uh, topics and just different uh, parts of and really holes of our lives. Um, can you can you take us back to uh, to your time in in Turkey? I, uh, from my understanding, you first went to Turkey, uh, kind of your entry point into the, the Middle East, um, before you ended up moving to Iraq. Um, but what was your, what was your time like in Turkey and, uh, that, that first exposure for you getting into, um, a a context that was outside of what you were familiar with, uh, back at home? Yeah. When we first touched down in Turkey, I, I knew everything. I mean, that, that might be one of the most important <laughs> things to establish. I, I knew everything at that time. I, I was extremely well-versed in theology and missiology and um, had never really had much of that baseline of who I was and how I saw the world challenged. I, I didn't have interactions in my life with people who were not essentially... Um, well, white evangelicalism was the water I swam in. I didn't have hardly any exposure at all. It was not at its essence, white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't even know that there were other ways to be Christian. Never mind the fact that, that then I was taking that self assuredness, that self righteousness into Mm -hmm. Uh, a Muslim context, <clears throat> so I definitely didn't uh, have any time or or space in my mind and heart for you know for Islam or for Muslims, and um, 
you know, I, I was faithful as I knew to be. I was, I was good at what I did in many ways as a young aspiring missionary church planter trying to do my part to be a, a, a good boy, a good foot soldier, so to speak, in the war on terror. I, I wanted my American family and friends to love me. I wanted I wanted them to feel like I was playing my role to protect us as Americans. Um, I wanted my white evangelical friends and family to love me. I wanted them to feel like I was doing my role to protect us as Christians. And so I, I would just go out every day in the streets of Turkey. I, I traveled the country and, and I did it right where I lived, uh, really just battling for the faith. Now, I guess the, the problem was that no one else was really battling me. No one else was looking for a fight. Um, no one else had a problem with me or with Christianity or with Americans even really. Um, but I came in itching for a fight. I came in angsty, you know, young, early 20s, um, fresh with a seminary degree that, that sort of conferred upon me all this, this, uh, this, I, I was degreed now, you know, like I, I had the actual uh, paper to, to tell you that I knew what I was talking about. And I had brought all that insecurity with me overseas and, and began living out of that, um, that combination of self-assuredness and, and, and really a deep insecurity, I think. Mm-hmm. And so everywhere I went, you know, I, I knew how to make a friendship into a fight. Uh, I, I would walk into a coffee shop and some shop owner or some guy at the table next to me would be like so enamored to see uh, you know, very obviously American guy in their country and would reach out with open arms, hospitality, free tea, free baklava, you know, whatever. And I would, <clears throat> I would want to skip over the chit chat and skip over the small talk and like really like insinuate myself into this person's life, kind of go for the jugular as quickly as possible. And over and over and over these, these Muslim Turks in most cases and and other people living in Turkey who were Muslim Afghans and and, and Uyghurs and others uh, They knew how to hold space. They knew how to open up their arms and say hey, you're Christian. We're Muslim Whatever we, we worship one God. So let's drink our tea and that would never be enough for me I just I would I would know how to like Turn that into a fight. Yeah, we might worship the same God, but or you might say we worship the same God, but what about this? Or what about that? And I just knew how to turn every act of friendship into a fight, it seemed. And um, about two and a half years into living this life, like just combating with everyone, I, I, was, uh, I was at a conference trying to figure out how to be a better church planter, how to be a better missionary, a very undercover kind of affair. Didn't want people to know who I was or what I was up to. Everything was full of secrecy and you know, kind of playing the cloak and dagger uh, spy game, um, which I, I also think was, was sort of part of the culture of the war on terror that we were, you know, a part of. Um, so I'm at this conference, I'm face down on the ground, I'm, I'm praying, crying out to God, really, why aren't you doing anything through me? Why am I not successful? Why aren't you, you know, 
making Muslims become Christians. Why aren't you making me a good church planter? And I'm, I'm crying this prayer out in frustration. And I heard a response. I heard a word. I saw the light. And from my tradition, like, I don't think we were supposed to expect answers to our prayers. We were supposed to pray, but I don't think we actually thought the word would come in response. And uh, I don't know if it came from heaven beyond. I don't know if it, it, was, it was a like psychological thing that welled up from inside me. But I, as I'm praying, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing it? The, the word was, it's because you don't love them, Jeremy. And I, I feel like I experienced it like a voice. It's because you don't love them, Jeremy. You love being right. You you love the fight of it all. You you love people thinking that you're this like persecuted missionary type out there trying to become the next Paul. But but you don't love this guy Muhammad sitting on the other side of the table, as he is Muhammad the Muslim. Full stop. And it was a devastating word. It it. It undid me in that moment, and not not in the kind of lighthearted way we said I'm undone now nowadays. It, like it, it mm-hmm. literally caused the person I was to cease to exist. With the word came new life. It was like the word melted this icy cage around my heart, and I I woke up. I I became a new person in that moment, and. Uh, Actually, I, I, I saw myself in my mind's eye. I was like standing up, boxing. My hands were in a defensive position. I was screaming out of the heavens, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing anything? And it was like I, I saw myself for the first time as the combatant that I was. I, I wasn't a servant. I wasn't, I wasn't loving. I was a combatant. I was trying to destroy Islam. Uh, I, was, I was really no different than some of those guys who had gone off to war with guns and, and talked about killing Muslims. I, I wanted them gone as well. And um, as, I, as I stood up from the ground, I, I was a completely different person. And I walked out of that conference 100% transformed and never, ever fought over faith the same way ever again. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's incredibly powerful of how transformative that, uh, that moment was for you. Um, in in that in that time and how that completely uh, really shifted your uh, your your focus um, can you can you can you elaborate on this uh, you mentioned this kind of combative uh, posture kind of angle that you were taking in the missional work that you were doing what how maybe it was overnight maybe it was over a longer period of time how did you um, uh, how did you shift your missional focus um, as you kind of, and this can be at that moment, or kind of how that's evolved uh, in the work that you're doing? Uh, well, ultimately, um, so we were living at that time when all that happened. Uh, I'll, I'll have to compress the timeline a little bit, but right. essentially um, we ended up moving to Iraq to start over, to mm-hmm. turn over a new leaf, turn over a new page, and uh, left behind that combative mm-hmm. worldview. Um, had already started paying attention a little bit, started being like uh, 
nudged, I guess, by the physical sufferings of people around us. Hmm. Um, when we when we came into Turkey, we had no regard for the poor, no thought about the physical or complex interlocking systems that people live in. We cared about one thing. We ter- cared about the internal resting place of the soul, and that hmm. was the only thing that that I cared about, the only conversation I wanted to have. But I started meeting poor people and and really waking up to how impoverished I was for having this, this one-dimensional view of people and this one-dimensional view of the world. So by the time we moved into Iraq, we knew that we wanted to, whatever this next phase of our life was, we, we wanted it to be a much more fully orbed, way of living that cared about people's bodies, that cared about the economy, that cared about the environment, that that cared about politics, but not in a way that tried to co-opt politics to be a theocratic kind of thing. Mm. And um, so it was it was within first couple weeks, maybe of living in Iraq, ready, uh, waiting for, I mean, we moved into what was an active war, not an active war zone per se, but we moved into the war. And so we were ready to help people. And um, it was in that context that I was in a hotel lobby one day, minding my business, and the chai guy who served the cafe comes up to the table, he sets my cup of tea down on the table and says, can I, can I ask you a favor? And he goes on to tell me about his little cousin, says that she was born with this life-threatening heart defect she's mm. she's got a huge hole in her heart mm. and she's gonna die because all the decades of war and now al-qaeda on the scene killing doctors and nurses like there was no one left in the country who could save his cousin's life and so he asked if we would help and um, i agreed to meet with his cousin a couple days later he brings his little six-year-old eight-year-old girl to to the cafe and it, it was it was the most important meeting of my life in many ways. I, it, it was the first time I was confronted with a life and death situation of, of somebody else, and they were begging for my help, and I, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer, but I decided to throw in with the family anyway, um, partially just to get them off my back, partially, honestly, just because I, I still wanted to be able to come to that cafe and didn't want to be the the jerk that just completely rejected the dying girl. But But whatever my mixture of motivations were, um, whatever my motivation mixture was, I, I ended up being introduced to hundreds and then thousands of other kids like her across the country who, who needed these life-saving surgeries. And mm. I guess to, to put a, to put a point on your precise question, it, it was, it was meeting other people on their own terms. It was not coming into the room with my own agenda. It was lowering my fist. I guess I didn't say this hmm. in my earlier telling of the story, but but I saw myself with my fists up when I was praying that prayer. I saw myself with my fist up fighting. And when the word came, you don't love them, Jeremy, I, I saw my fists lower from my face. My elbows slackened, my arms started opening wide and my fists unclenched into you know these sort of hands of receiving and that came in some ways to define 
my posture for life. I mean, there, there were some things that still needed to be refined in right. areas where I'm still growing, but right. but the the overall orientation of much of my life ceased to be about me fighting for the faith and started being more about me welcoming others and, and choosing a path of hospitality. So, mm. so when I met that little girl, in, in many ways I was I was in a more hospitable posture for living, and I think. I think that made all the difference. Missiologically, if, if I mean, essentially, somewhere along the way, there we left, we left all that behind. I mean, that's that's the only way I know to say it. Like, we needed to turn over a new leaf. We needed to dispense with the idea that that this was a right and wrong, good versus evil, Christian versus Muslim struggle. And the the hospitality thing really, I guess, started a season of our life where it, it meant that we relied on this mysterious spirit, this God who we claimed was love. We, we, we entrusted our friends to the spirit. We entrusted our friends to love rather than feeling like we had to be these egotistical agents of, of change. We, we couldn't coerce people into faith anymore. We had to just release and, and be with them. Hmm. Uh, I think that, that is, that was essentially a missiological thing. Yes, it was theological. It was, it was, it was anthropological. I mean, it, it changed who I was as a man, who I was as a person hmm. to start living that way. Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, that's uh, very uh, very powerful as well, and just the, this release um, that uh, and how that completely shifted so many different aspects. Maybe that you weren't you weren't hoping for, uh, or you were kind of looking for clarity or looking for more understanding, uh, and it kind of blew, kind of blew up your whole uh, mm. your whole perception of how things sure. were, were supposed to be. Um, can you, so now shifting more into, into peacemaking, um, and has gotten a lot more, uh, I'd say popularity maybe, uh, today. Um, can you explain for, for listeners who may not be as familiar, uh, what p- peacemaking is all about or kind of how you, how you see peacemaking and maybe some of the misconceptions that need to be, uh, need to be clarified. Hmm, that's good. That's great. Um, let me, yeah, let me, let me see if I can get a running start into that. So I guess by way of narrative to just catch everything up, because I, I think it's helpful for understanding mm. now how I think about these things. Mm. Um, this one little girl that needed a life-saving heart surgery then introduced us to hundreds and thousands of kids who needed these life-saving surgeries. We started helping these kids left and right. We would send them out to surgery for a while. Then we started bringing in world-class expert doctors and nurses and we started training people all over Iraq to do these surgeries. We'd save thousands of lives, train doctors with tens of thousands of hours of training. And we we became fairly known in Iraq. I mean, I had access, I have access, had access to, we were working with the prime minister, we were working with the president and president's wife and the top Shia 
Ayatollah, Grand Ayatollah, and all of Shia Islam, the top Sunni leaders, tribal leaders. I mean, we had access, and we're working with the, the most powerful and the most poor. And um, in, in many ways, they didn't agree with each other at times, uh, but we all agreed that children's lives were worth saving. And at the, at the height of that work, um, this little-known terror group called ISIS blows up on the scene, takes over about a third of Syria and a third of Iraq, and um, displaces millions of people from their homes, and, and people are just running for their lives. They need everything from food, water, medicine, shelter, cash, jobs. And um, we were, you know, we were essentially a very successful small surgery organization. And we, we had to change everything because people were just filling up in our streets, uh, suffering in need of everything that you and I need mm-hmm. to live well in this world. And we essentially abandoned the surgery work to care for millions of people who were, who were living homeless now on the run for their lives from ISIS. And, and as the military fight against ISIS started, ISIS had occupied all these villages and all these cities and towns. We would go toward the fight. People are running out of the combat zone. We started running into the combat zone mm-hmm. to to get aid to people on the front lines uh, as close to their moment of need as possible. And so for years, then, we were showing up on the front lines of these battles, getting shot at, bombs dropping near and nearby, and sometimes airstrikes literally targeting us because we were so far behind enemy lines that um, they thought we were the enemy. Uh, and that whole, that whole series of experiences and years then has come to profoundly inform how we think about peacemaking. Um, these are not ideas we read in books. Uh, these are not things that we heard on a podcast (laughs) of some blowhard saying, uh, these are, these are things that we had to go out and, and test and experience for ourselves. And, and so I guess, I mean, may, maybe by way of introduction, I would say peacemaking is a lot of things and, and there are numerous, maybe valid doors that you could enter through and, and be a part of the work called peacemaking. We don't claim to, own all those doors or, or have the keys to all those doors. We don't claim that our way is the only way. Uh, but it, but it is a, it is a set of values that we've learned in, in some of the hardest places on the planet, um, gaining access to places that, that literally no other international aid organization on the planet could gain access to. Um, and we're, we're trying to figure out now how to, how to leverage that, how to, how to serve in like an American context, for example, mm-hmm. and bring those lessons home because we, we think there's, there's so much truth in what we've learned that it, it applies everywhere. Um, maybe, maybe let me try and go one layer deeper and say this. I think it's important that we don't conflate some various things that, that could be meant in the word peacemaking, forgiveness, for example, and reconciliation. Those are two, those are two very different things um, in our way of thinking mm-hmm. about it. 
forgiveness is something that that I, as an individual, have agency over. I can choose to forgive my oppressor, or I can choose to not forgive my oppressor. I can, I might need to hold on to my pain for for a while because it's it's um, it's become such an integral part of of how I know myself and who I am. Who would I be without this pain? Who, who would I be if I didn't identify with this injustice that's been done to me? Um, but then there can come a time where you dissociate yourself in a healthy way from, from that pain. You realize that you can be more than that pain. You are not entirely summed up by that injustice, be it a personal molestation or a group genocide. Uh, you... You can find identity and meaning that is not strictly attached to that trauma. And and when that awareness, that reality starts to dawn on you, you start realizing, like, I, I can forgive the person who did this to me. Some people realize that in holding on to bitterness, anger, all of which might be justified, they're, they're only hurting themselves. It's not like the other person uh, is necessarily harmed by our private inner dialogue, you know, that we mm. ruminate on. So forgiveness is like a, maybe an element or a stage of peacemaking. Reconciliation is a whole nother deal. Reconciliation is on another level because that requires both parties to reconcile, to come back together in a way. Mm. And that that's a higher order work. It, it requires... It requires different methodology. It requires a, a certain kind of patience, um, a certain kind of intention. So peacemaking is not just one thing, and it, it doesn't all happen at once. There's there's layers or stages that, that I think we often go through on our way to that. And then there's the personal dynamic, the, the kind of interpersonal dynamic, the interpersonal dynamic, mm-hmm. and then group-based dynamics that, that are all involved as well. So in a lot of, uh, thank you for, for, um, for clarifying uh, a bit more of peacemaking and some of the differences or maybe subcategories of, uh, of forgiveness and then also separately um, with, with reconciliation. Are you, uh, with the Preemptive Love Coalition, are you engaging in, I guess forgiveness is more of kind of self-ownership. Uh, something that's more on you. Are you engaging more in, recon- are you also doing reconciliation or is that, is that something that is not uh, kind of within your sphere or domain? We take a very holistic view of everything we do. Um, Great. We exist to end war. And we mean that however you want to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we've learned is that these, these wars, they start in our heads and our hearts before they ever reach our hands. That was certainly my, my story. I, I um, I set out in the world in many ways to eradicate Islam. I was I was far too refined and smart, cultured to to say it that way. That would have been unseemly. I knew better than to say we want to wipe Islam off the face of the earth. But there was arguably no other way. There was no other conclusion for what my missionary work was essentially about. 
if, if Islam is inherently evil, if Islam is inherently a front to God, if God loves Christians most, best, priority, any, any way of slicing that, you know, mm -hmm. if Christians are the ones who ultimately win in the end, um, <clears throat> if, if Islam is misleading, if Islam is leading people astray, if Muslims are, you know, essentially uh, damned to hell, then I, I wanted it gone. I wanted Muslims gone. I didn't want there to be such a thing as a Muslim. I didn't want there to be such a thing as Islam. I wanted all of it to convert to being Christianity. It was, it was a, I had a dominating worldview where we had to win and they had to not only lose, but they had to, they had to be gone. They had to cease to exist in some ways because their essence was wrong. Their essence was somehow abhorrent to God. Mm. And um, that's an idea. That's a that's a theological statement. That's a belief. It's a piece of dogma that ultimately worked in and through my life and fed into the war machine, fed into the war system. What we believe affects who we vote for, affects our foreign policy, affects our budgets, affects how we go to war. So these things are not divorced from one another. Our ideas give rise to who we kill and who we let live. And... Um, so, so we take a very holistic view to how we approach all of this work. We, we work to provide emergency relief to people who are running for their lives. We'll, we'll show up and get shot at just so we can give people food and water and medicine. We provide help that lasts, like jobs primarily is one of our biggest things that we do. We, we help provide jobs, workforce development, mm. where we're providing thousands of people jobs in a country all the way down to helping one person start an individual business uh, because help that lasts significantly reduces violence. It significantly reduces ability for terror groups and, and militias to recruit people into war. If, if economies are stable, if people have the income they need, then, then we're all way better off. So we provide help fast, we provide help that lasts, but then the other major component is we we try to heal the past by changing the ideas that lead to war. So I think it's it's all of that, and I, I try to resist the urge to get drawn into one quadrant or mm. or another. It, it is inner peacemaking because um, our ideas matter profoundly, and it is intergroup reconciliation work as well. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating how you're you're thinking about it from multiple different, uh, I guess, angles and layers and, uh, and thinking about the stakeholders and the people involved, um, that are, that are essential, uh, outside of maybe what we, uh, what or kind of outside of the impact that you, um, that you might initially come to the table with, uh, but thinking about how, how other people are being impacted as well. Um, can you, for, for, for listeners who are, uh, or maybe based in the United States, or, or maybe in, based in a in a in a context where uh, there is more, uh, there is an in increase of tension or division. Um, what are some practical ways that, uh, that we can engage in peacemaking uh, based on your experience? There's two two major things that I've, I've been coming to learn and understand over these years of 
of my own transformation and um, the ways that others have loved me. I guess there's a way to hear this story where somehow uh, I'm I'm the racist, bigoted, you know, kind of white bro who overcomes my ego and and changes. And then somehow I become the hero of this story. I think what what gets buried in that way of hearing things is the numerous Muslims who had every right to see me as an invader, every reason to see me as a combatant, every historical justification for being afraid of me and what I was bringing to the table and chose to love me anyway. chose to put their life on the line, chose to put themselves at risk, chose to press into the stereotype and see if I would prove them wrong or prove the stereotype wrong. There are are so many Muslim friends who have loved me into the person that I am today. And um, so I I guess the, the principle there is We need to draw near to the things that scare us most. Um, We don't have to do it all at once, but we are not going to think our way out of these dynamics that we're in right now. Um, We don't have a rationale problem. And, And that's how a lot of the world is going about what they genuinely perceive to be peacemaking efforts. That's that's what a lot of the yelling on Twitter is about now. It's, it's if I yell loud enough, if I write my words just right, if I articulate my argument so, then I will be able to reason other people into seeing things my way. The problem is that's just not how human development works. That's not how the human brain works. Our rationale, our reasoning is always playing catch up to our intuition, to the, the, the affect, the things we feel. We feel something first hmm. and, and then our rationale is finally attuned to like catch up and go, oh yeah, of course, uh, the reason that we do things that way is because, but, but our rationale is posturing. Um, there, there's some there's a, a metaphor in psychology that that talks about our feelings, our intuitions, like an elephant, and our rationale is like a rider on top of the elephant. The elephant's going to go wherever the elephant wants to go. The rider has not a lot of say in the matter. So when when our our rationale, our rider, starts feeling our elephant move to the right then our, our brain goes, oh yeah, uh, sure, let's go right. Oh, yeah, I wanted to go right. And, and so we're, we're arguing at these rationale levels, but we're not relating to one another in a healthy way that would change our intuitions, that would change the things we feel before we even know we feel it. Why do some people want to walk to the other side of the street when they look a block ahead and see a black guy walking down the street toward them at nine o'clock at night that there's a there's a there's a gut level feeling that 
some of us feel. We don't want to be that way, but but we were raised in an environment or an era or a culture that that conditioned our emotions to be that way. When you know, shortly after 9/11, the trope was when a Muslim guy gets onto an airplane. Why did so many people get super angsty and up in arms? That at a, at a deep emotional level, are we're feeling things, and that our brain is trying to play catch up with what we're feeling. What we have to do is we have to retrain our feelings, our, our intuitions, the things that affect us. And I think the way we do that is by reframing our relationships. We, we need a lot more relational experiences with each other, with people who are very different from us. That's how we re-engineer, retrain the things that so many of us are just kind of knee-jerk wired to feel. Is that too esoteric? Does that make sense? I, I would, it all comes down to relationship. I think it is so much of this. It, it, we have to get into relationship with each other. Mm. No, thank you. That the that psychological uh, um, uh, approach uh, or just way of thinking about this is really fascinating. And I haven't I haven't thought about feelings uh, kind of in the root of feelings and how we're wired um, to to initiate a particular response. Um, based on these feelings uh, and kind of this um, seeing how in this example how reason uh, is almost a byproduct uh, of uh, of our maybe of our historical experiences uh, mm. or our connections that we're that we're making um, based on uh, a particular uh, situation uh, that may have uh, caused or given a given us such such a sort of feeling um so i think i guess yeah going back to that initial or kind of unpacking and getting to that initial uh just that human connection um and just that i think that rawness but also that that pureness um that is that is available uh between one person and another person um and seeing just that the deep meaning uh, in, in re in restoring that and reestablishing that connection. Um, it's kind of what I'm taking from what you're, <laughs> from what you've, uh, with what you, what you've explained. Um, but it, it, it makes sense though. I think a lot of our, uh, it, it is important to think about our history of where we've come from and how that has, um, and how developments have, uh, have brought us to particular places, uh, and to always have that historical context um, and, and to put that in, in work with where, we're, uh, where we might come to the table. Mm. Um, the good news is we can change. The yes. good news is that these hard wirings can change, mm. but we have to be intentional about setting up our lives in such a way that they change. It, it's not that we will rationalize our way into loving others mm. at, a, at a step-by-step level. That's not how it works. It's already too late at that point. Your elephant is already moving in a certain direction by the time your brain realizes I'm supposed to be a loving person right now. Um, what hmm. we have to do is we can sit we can sit down at the dinner table though, and we can engineer a life structure that will start working on our underlying intuitions. Hmm. We can start we can pack up our house. I mean our story, I'll, I'll say this in summary. Hmm. 
our summary, our, our story is essentially about leaving home and taking as little as we could take with us. Now, we took a lot of baggage with us to Turkey. I didn't realize it at the time. We packed lightly, but we had a lot of baggage. And after that face-down encounter in the hotel lobby where I heard, you don't love them, Jeremy, essentially, I left all my baggage or a lot of my baggage on that hotel floor when I walked away. And what I walked away is lighter freer than ever before. So that's why every encounter with Muslims after that was was different because I wasn't dragging all my baggage with me anymore. Then when we moved to Iraq, I, I left behind a whole other set of baggage. And I think when I started going into the front lines of war and getting shot at and you know stuff like that, our team started leaving behind more baggage. So how can we keep leaving home and taking as little as we can with us so that we can actually experience people for who they are, for how they are. It's not just that we need to open up our table and let more people in. That's part of the story. We do need to draw near, but we also need to relinquish our own over-identification with our own labels. Mm. It's not just that Muslims aren't bad, and I need to reframe that label. It's not just that any, any number of labels like that that we place on each other. That's, that's half the equation. The other half of the equation is I have to relinquish my, my over-identification with my own labels and learn that I am more than I thought I was mm-hmm. as well. Very well said. Um, and, and thank you for, uh, for elaborating on that point. I think that's a great way to conclude. Um, this this podcast uh and just to to wrap up um where where can where can people find you uh your book and just stay stay in the loop with all that you're doing um and then if just if there's anything else that you uh that we didn't cover you'd like to say um we'd we'd love to hear yeah i'll say again thank you my name is jeremy courtney the book is love anyway it's available on amazon or at your local bookstore you can find out more at loveanyway.com. The organization is Preemptive Love. That's preemptivelove.org. You can also get there through loveanyway.com. Uh, everything we are doing is is essentially about working to end war, which which is about how we relate to each other. So we'd love for you to join us uh, through one of our Love Anyway gatherings um, as a monthly giver to Preemptive Love. So that we can work together to end war. That would be amazing. Would love for you to read the book. I believe it's got something really powerful to to offer in this moment that we're in right now where, where everything's tearing us apart. I think there's there's a lot of hope and a vision for a way forward. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jeremy. It was a pleasure speaking with you, hearing more about your book, uh, Preemptive Love Coalition, and and your story. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate it.